So uh, starting from verse 17 through 32, uh, Paul the Apostle continues to describe a new standard that is expected of God's new society. As verse 1 said that Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, begged the Ephesians to walk worthy of the calling they were called. And, uh, you know, you guys uh, heard it from me a few weeks in a row. You heard it from Aaron this week, just that uh, all of the gospel from chapters 1 through 3 uh, shows us the good news of redemption in Jesus and that uh, such wonderful good news uh, leads to behavior, uh, a right behavior from those who really believe that. And, uh, and so there's this life that's to be lived out that's worthy of God's calling on our lives. It's, it's bought and paid for by the gospel. It's motivated by grace. We have an example of it in Jesus. And, uh, and so we have this need for cultivating purity in our lives. Um, it's been said purity is an indispensable characteristic of the people of God as unity is. So as much as the last couple Sundays just unity was trumpeted and unity based from the gospel that is brought about by humble hearts responding to the gospel, it leads to unity. So important in the new society of the church, uh, but also purity uh, is as well. And so uh, verse 17, and I didn't have many slides, but Olivia, if you want to go ahead and put up just Ephesians four seventeen through 32, uh, we'll at least have our Ephesians verses here in front of us. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. So uh, Paul, in this chapter, has given us two uh, assumptions of his authority. Verse 1, one of the things that showed his authority was uh, his, his chains in Christ. Those were proof of his apostleship. And so because of that, he beseeched us to walk a walk worthy of the gospel. Uh, but here in verse 17, uh, here he's, he uh, testifies in the Lord as part of his authority. Or he insists on it in the Lord is how it could literally be, be translated. It's another way of begging. Now, uh, what he's going to insist upon is li our lives lived out. But if you're a note taker, you might just note or even just glance at it. Verses 17 through 24 show us a doctrinal basis of the new life the theology behind why we would live this way. Uh, and then verses 25 through chapter 5, verse 4, if you just want to look ahead, those are just practical outworkings of this in the believer's everyday life. So, um, And so he, he's going to get into this doctrinal basis of the new life. I insist on this in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. A, a walk speaks of a behavior. And uh, I remember when I was first walking with the Lord, no pun intended, it just it comes out, walking with the Lord, uh, that uh, 
there was another, there was a revival going on in the youth group. You guys have even referred to it recently quite a few times. And, and one of the girls who was saved just out of a partying life and just out of darkness, so many just people, just teens, saved out of darkness, just incredible revival. I know we're praying for that in our community. Um, her, her name was Sierra. And just kind of a cool girl, and she sang. She was a really good singer. In fact, if you guys remember the band The Cranberries, you know, she kind of had that style, like, ah, yeah, 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 kind of yodeling while she sang. It was really cool. Uh, <laughs> anywho, uh, I remember she came over with a bunch of teenagers uh, one night to my house, and they actually came by because um, I'd been having a lot of fear of the spiritual realm. And, uh, and so they came to my house to pray just over my heart and that I wouldn't be afraid. And, and that was really a night in my life where uh, I was set free from fear of, of just being around any sort of spiritual presence, good or evil, actually. And then we just went and hung out in my backyard and had fellowship. And I remember this girl, Sierra, saying, what are you guys always talking about? The walk, <laughs> you know, the walk, walking with Jesus. What are you talking about? And I just remember just that awesome, new believer, innocent, just, what's the walk? You know, what, walk in with Jesus. What are you even talking about there? And I just remember my youth pastor just laying out for her the, the behavior that we have with Christ as we're step by step in relationship with him. And so Paul insists and implores and begs us that we, uh, would behave step by step in one way, but not in another. And, and the not would be not as the pagans. Um, cracking up today, one of my friends from middle school on Facebook uh, had a nativity scene, but it was, it was actually a pagan nativity scene in the sense that they basically took all their kids like action figures and, you know, uh, toys from the toy box and put it out there with a gingerbread house, you know, and so you could see what they were trying to do, you know, good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, he called it a pagan nativity scene. And, and uh, you know, Paul says, you know, just don't walk the way the pagans do. Clear back in chapter 2, verse 2, we read at our fallen condition before Christ was that we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and power of the air, uh, just in darkness, in alienation, in hand in hand with the devil. And Peter would tell us in 1 Peter 4 that we spent enough of our past lifetime walking in the path of the Gentiles. When we used to walk in lewdness and lusts and drunkenness and revelries and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. Peter says that's enough of that. We've spent enough of our time. We've wasted enough time doing that. In regard to these, he says, the Gentiles think it's strange that you're not walking with them anymore. And they've begun to speak evil of you in that. So stop walking with them. Paul begged us, implored us because of the gospel. They've been walking, those Gentiles, in the futility of their mind, verse 17 says. Which speaks of an emptiness in their way of thinking. And just in your study, as you start studying this section of scripture, what's noteworthy right away is that the apostle emphasizes the intellectual factor in everybody's way of life. 
what they've come to know, what they've come to believe will reflect how we live. And so Romans 1, for instance, uh, talks about how, you know, sinning and hardening of heart uh, leads to a futility of thoughts, which leads to our foolish hearts being darkened. I say ours in the sense of humanity. Professing to be wise, Paul says in the Romans, they became fools and they changed their worship from that that went to an incorruptible God to worshiping corruptible man uh, and birds and forfeited animals and creeping things. And it's kind of interesting the stair step downward that that idolatry went. Like instead of worshiping God, worship something made a little lower, made in the image of God, but not God, created things. Uh, and then birds, which, you know, fly in the air and have their height, and then all the way down to four-footed animals, and then creeping, crawling things. Scripture bears an unwavering testimony in the power of ignorance and error and corruption, but also on the good end, that how truth has a power. Truth has a power to liberate and to ennoble and to refine. As Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. I remember when Lindsay and I first got married, she said that, and I go, that's not a Bible verse. <laughs> I was a youth pastor. That's not a Bible verse. That's something from Touched by an Angel. Because I do remember, you know, cruising around in the red Cadillac, you know, they'd say that. And I'm like, that, that was, that was uh, you know, uh, Touched by an Angel. And then Lindsay's like, you shall know the truth, and the truth tells that. Okay, learn my lesson, uh, husbands. Um, Never argue with your wife. But, uh, but as the truth is preached, it needs to be preached for it to have this liberating effect, ennobling effect, refining effect. First uh, Thessalonians, my mind went to First Thessalonians. Why don't you flip there with me tonight? I've got a lot of references. Some of them I'll have you flip to. Some I'll kind of paraphrase. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. As you're flipping there, you know, how many of you have wondered, what's the will of God for my life? Anybody ever wondered that? Just, what's the will of God? Okay, here's the will of God. We can just really simplify it. The will of God is your sanctification. Okay? That... He wants you to be set apart from the world. He wants you to be set apart from the Gentiles uh, or the pagan belief and philosophies and paganism and idolatry. Uh, he wants you to be sanctified. And, and then it gets specifically in one area here in 1 Thessalonians that you would abstain from sexual immorality. So he wants you to be set apart from the way that the Gentiles do things. And he, he has a, a created plan and design for even sex, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. But then he goes on to say, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Okay, so remember our Ephesians passage, like I implore you, um, you know, I insist that we don't walk in the manner of the Gentiles. And here, uh, he tells the Thessalonians, even in the manner of sexuality, uh, we're not to live the way that we watch our Gentile pagan friends live 
uh, sexually in this world. Uh, they do whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, when we've been given created order as to how our bodies are to be used in worship to the Lord. We need to know how to possess our bodies in a sanctifying way, in a way that is honorable to the Lord, not in passion of lust. I mean, isn't there a soap opera called Passions? You know, uh, I mean, there you go. You just watch the soap operas and you watch the worldly uh, ways of doing things. Um, they don't know God in the way they do things. And then he just goes on to say, it's just worth mentioning that no one should take advantage and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such. So uh, anything that is not purity, anything that is not sanctification, anything that is not honor, in one way or another is a defrauding of your brother or your sister. And, and the Lord will avenge that. Um, there's been forewarning and testifying of this. And then God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who's also given us his Holy Spirit. And that last little verse is important in our text tonight as well. Just the, the direct connection between um, sanctification and honor in the way we, our bodies are used um, versus a quenching of the Holy Spirit, a rejecting of God who's given us the Holy Spirit as a seal, as a guarantee of our salvation. That will be found later on even in our Ephesian passage tonight. And so uh, the text back in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 17 is, uh, I testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Uh, in the futility of their mind. Verse 18 having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. And so their minds and their dispositions are dark. That is a great way to begin praying for our lost friends and neighbors and family members uh, that they would be enlightened because right now their um, understanding is dark. Their disposition is dark. Uh, a couple times in this epistle, Paul has spoke of the alienation that, that the lost have from God. They are foreigners and strangers, estranged from relationship with God. And so, uh, you know, I just love the ministries God's given me out on the soccer fields and out on some of the farms and ranches. And I'm meeting some of these guys and I'm just like, I just have a heart burden for them and praying for them. Lord, give them enlightened understanding. Help them to be brought in from being strangers and foreigners. Uh, Paul tells us in the Colossians that, that we were alienated and enemies in our mind by wicked works. So again, you guys see the intellect here. There is this level of ignorance that brings about darkness and alienation. It says there because of the ignorance that is in them in our text. Now flip over to Acts 17 Paul's preaching on Mars Hills, uh, Mars Hill to the um, philosophers of Greece. And he gets a chance to preach to them there at, in this court of um, philosophy where this group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers did nothing but to either hear or tell some new thing. And here comes Paul with this message that is certainly a new thing. Uh, and he begins preaching to them about God, the creator, and, 
and uh, actually uses one of their cultural references to take their mind there, uh, a shrine to the unknown God. And so he speaks about the, their unknown God. Verse 26 of Acts 17, this God made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. And he's determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. So just pause real quick. He's, he's spent the day walking around getting a tour of Athens, and he sees like under every shrub there is uh, an idol, uh, another god that they're worshiping. And it, he just began to be stirred and, and really disgusted by the paganism. He couldn't take it anymore. So it was the right time now to begin preaching. And he said, I saw one, though, that said to the unknown God. By the way, there's a book, Eternity in Our Hearts. I think Mark Halverson gave it to me. Incredible story of, of Athens in there and uh, what that shrine was a reference to. It's actually a beautiful picture of Jesus and salvation. Um, don't have time to get into that right now. Uh, but as he's stirred and he begins preaching, he says, you guys, and even the Israelites knew, would fall into this sin thinking that you know, we could just take a stump out of the woods, Isaiah tells us, and, and begin carving the stump and whittling it away. And you know, uh, we carve up this nice little image and we stick it up you know, and we begin worshiping it. And then it, it falls over and we have to like put it back up and you know, worship it. And, and we're the ones that hauled it, carved it, tip it up. You know, and, and, and he's like, eyes it has, but it doesn't see. Ears it has, but it doesn't hear. You know, it, it, it's nothing. It's nothing at all. And so, and Paul says the same thing. Man, this God that created everything and, and in him we live and we move and we have our being and sovereignly he's established the nation's boundaries and he's put men where they are at such a time as this. And this is comforting to us in our day and age as well that, that men might perhaps seek him and grope for him and find him. And yet you guys have all been thinking that he's some Something like some piece of gold that you can worship or something silver, something that man's devising could create that then you could worship. In verse 30, he says, truly these times of ignorance, God has overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he's ordained. He's given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And so part of the the alienation and um, part of the the Gentiles paganism had come from ignorance, but now there's no more ignorance. Now they're being shown the truth of the gospel, and now God's calling everyone to repent because he's determined a day where he's going to judge the world. And so you have this description of these pagans. They've got in our text 4.18 of Ephesians, their understanding is darkened. With that goes along the latter part of the verse. There's blindness of heart. So really there's dark understanding. There's blindness. They're alienated. It's because of the ignorance and because of the blindness. Um, 
Blindness, by the way, speaks of hardness, dullness, stubbornness in their inner self. Uh, one translation speaks of this hardness as, or blindness as a kind of marble, or in medical writers, uh, callous or bony formation on the joints. And so what's really speaking of is a, a calloused heart or some kind of a um, um, growth there on a joint. My, just down at Thanksgiving, my uncle, you guys might know him, Rick, he uh, was just showing me this. You know, all of a sudden, I got this big old giant, like crazy callous formation bone thing on my joint. I've never seen anything like that. And uh, that's what's happening over the hearts of these men. In the Old Testament, the prophets would call it a shrugging of the shoulders. Guys, I mean, just picture that. If you've had a rebellious child, <laughs> you know, you know exactly. I mean, I've, we've seen it in ours. You know, it's just kind of like a, mm. you're like, what do you mean? Mm. Like, I just called you out on your sin, you know. Um, <laughs> a shrugging of the shoulders or a stiffening of the neck is also in the Old Testament. Uh, stiff neck, shrugging of shoulders. Um, the prophet Zechariah says, uh, man, the Lord went out with like a merciful message to them, but they refused to heed and they shrugged their shoulders and stopped their ears so they could not hear. Okay, now forget our kids for a second and think about you. When the Lord's putting the gentle conviction on your heart about sin and compromise and laziness and your walk with him and you, you know just kind of stop our ears like I'm just going to pretend like I didn't hear that I'm going to yeah no big deal dad no big deal you know and uh, or a hardness of heart uh, Nehemiah writes of the shrugging of the shoulders and a stiffening of a neck and you wouldn't hear but for many years Nehemiah's praying you had patience with them and testified by your spirit through the prophets. The NEB translates it, their minds have grown hard as stone. GNB translation uses the word stubborn. And I wish I had it on me. I was just looking at Twitter before I came over here and uh, John Piper wrote, and all the times that we have chosen our flesh over the holiness of God. While we have a moment of conviction, take it. And it was something along those lines. It's not a direct quote, but it was something along, and it just oh, made me think of the text tonight of, we know, we know those times that we've chosen the flesh and sin over the holiness of God. And if, and if by his grace, he pricks our heart about it, don't wait till tomorrow to respond to that. You know, the Hebrew writer says, today, while it is still called today, do not harden your heart. As some of those did in the day of rebellion when in one day 25,000 fell. Don't harden your heart. Man, just a word for tonight, maybe before we would close in, in prayer tonight, just... You know what, just purpose in your heart right now that you're going to deal with that, that you're going to respond, that you're going to let the Lord, you know, I think of when you get a sliver, or even if you get a sliver in a callus, and you get a needle or something, and you begin to, you know, uh, you got to kind of push the skin around it away to kind of get, just let the Lord do that.
Don't let it just stop with a, an infection. Let the Lord tonight, as his word goes forth, oh Lord, push that callus away and get down in there to where it's tender so that we can get that out and just let it heal uh, before it you know, eventually would bring death. A man named Holden commented, pagan immorality is seen as willful and culpable guiltiness. The reason of deliberate refusal of the moral light available to them in their own thought and conscience. And so this blindness to the Gentiles was deliberate refusal of moral light. You guys are doing really good tonight. I'm feeling it. I'm feeling like even though it was a hard day, I know you guys were working hard. Loving the word tonight. Praise God. Verse 19, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. So talking about the Gentiles still, which we all were uh, until we were saved. They were past feeling. And again, that means they've become calloused. They've begun to lose the feeling of shame. They've become numb. Paul told Timothy that the wicked have their own consciences seared with a hot iron. For some of us, that's us tonight. Again, let the callous just be ripped away by the Lord tonight. Uh, but for some of us, it's our friends that, you know, our faces come to mind that we can be praying for as we're in the word right now. Jude says, woe to them for they've gone in the way of Cain and run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit. Our text says that the Gentiles given themselves over to lewdness, which means they've basically handed themselves over. They've even betrayed themselves is the language. They've betrayed themselves to licentious sensuality. Try saying that 10 times fast. Don't really, that'd be awkward. But licentious sensuality. Just give, I'm just going to give myself over to that. The NEB translation says it. They stop at nothing to satisfy their foul desires. To work all uncleanliness with greediness. In other words, they profit and gain and make a trade business out of their impurity and exploitation. We see that later on in the book of Revelation. Part of the, the woman who rides the beast and part of Babylon is such profit uh, and luxury that would come from sin. And uh, when God destroys Babylon, the great harlot, many men weep because of all of her trade that is lost in the destruction. And by the way, do you remember that with the spices and with the minerals and the gold and the animals and all that that's traded, do you remember bodies and souls of men are traded? We fasted through Revelation this last year, if you remember that. Remember towards the end of the week, might have been the last day, we read that before we were going to Nepal and we prayed over Nepal that bodies and souls of men would no longer be a commodity, that he would end human trafficking. That's part of this Gentile working all in cleanness with greediness. Verse 20, only 12 more verses to go in the next 20 minutes. We got this. But you have not so learned Christ. This is not how you've come to know the Messiah. This isn't what you've learned from us preaching of Jesus. 
And what he then goes into is what's considered like a school type setting. All of those things that the Gentiles do, that is not what you've learned Jesus does or what he's paid for you or what he has for you. That's not what you've learned, what you've learned Christ. First of all, if you're a note taker, note that Christ is the substance of the teaching. And part of our values here at Calvary is that it's the Christ-centered word Christ-centered teaching, Christ-centered preaching. Even going to the Corvallis retreat this weekend, I noticed on the websites we're going to go hear a, a man talk about a man need to come and know the man, Jesus Christ. A little Ken Graves action for you. I just remember, you know, I noticed, and I, I know it was innocent, but it just said, come hear a man-centered teaching. You know, we know what they meant, but just my heart's like, I don't want to hear no man-centered teaching. I want to hear a Christ-centered teaching and Christ-centered preaching. I know what he meant. I'm not trying to be nitpicky, you know. Um, but sadly, most of us want to hear man-centered teaching. Like, come on, like, tickle my ears and make it about me here. And, uh, and here we see that it's Christ. Christ is the substance of the teaching. Verse 21, if indeed you have heard him, and been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. This is a rich verse, you guys. Again, this is the image of a school. And in the school, verse 20, Christ is the substance of the teaching. Then he goes into, if indeed you have heard, let me throw a couple translations out there. ESV, assuming that you have heard. NIV, when you have heard, or the New Revised, for surely you have heard. And then it goes into this school setting. You've heard him. You've listened. Or you've been able to hear him. So not only is Christ the substance of the teaching, secondly, Christ is the context of the teaching. When Jesus was uh, at the Mount of Transfiguration, and uh, Moses and Elijah appear, and you know, Peter and John and James, and they want to set the tabernacles up. And you know, you guys know the story. Uh, what is it that, that God says there on the mountain? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. Hear him. He's the substance and the context. You got to hear it from him. If you, Jesus says, he who uh, hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. He who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. You've got to be a hearer. Many times in the scripture, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That implies that there are those that do not have ears to hear. It's my prayer that even here tonight, <laughs> there would be ears to hear. <laughs> or hears to hear. In John 10, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. In Acts, Peter preaches that Moses said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up a prophet from you like me. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says. And it shall be that every soul that does not hear that prophet will be utterly destroyed. It's a prophecy of Jesus. Prophet, priest, and king. 
in the same line of Moses, in that same prophetic office of Moses, hear him. And again, from Hebrews, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness. And the verse goes on in our text, and if you've been taught by him, so not only is Christ the substance, not only is Christ the context, but Christ is the teacher of the teaching. As the truth is in Jesus, he says, which means Christ is the atmosphere of the teaching. But notice real quick, the name change. He's talking Christ, 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 or anointed one, anointed one, anointed one, or Messiah, Messiah, Messiah. And then he just comes and he says the given name, Jesus. The truth is in Jesus. All throughout the New Testament, we find that to be true. John 1, 17, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. One of our favorite memory verses, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. 1 John 5.20 says that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son Jesus Christ. This is the true God. Jesus is true. And he's truth. Verse 22 that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. And so here we get into more imperative. It is imperative that you put off or lay aside or take off. Take it off and put it away or just stop doing it. J.B. Phillips' paraphrase captures the thought well. What you learned was to fling off and then put on. You have learned in Christ about the old man and about the new man. Concerning your former conduct, the old man, the former behavior. Romans tells us the old man was crucified with Jesus that the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves of sin. Romans also says, reckon the old man dead. Account it as dead. Consider it as dead. That old man grows corrupt. It destroys, it ruins, it depraves. And it uses deceitful lusts, deep desires of deception to kill everything in its sight. Romans says, chapter 7, that Sin took something good like the law, took occasion by the law, and deceived me and killed me. Hebrews warns us not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So the imperative, put off the old man and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Be made new. This new man has a new mind. You remember that song of David, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Make it new within me. 
Even though our outward body is perishing, our inward man is being renewed day by day. Give me a new mind, new heart. Help me to walk in that new mind, that new heart. And then it speaks of it being renewed in the spirit of our mind. That speaks of our way of thinking. You know, when we came to Christ after he, of course, pursued us, when we responded to him and we repented of our sin, the word repent speaks of a change of mind. I changed my mind about who I was and who you were, God, and now I find that I'm nothing and you're everything. And I submit myself to you. I yield to you. I, I bow myself before your mercy. There's a new way of thinking now, and that way of thinking needs to be renewed. Flip over to Romans 12.2. Romans 12.2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I think it's the Phillips translation that says, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. I don't remember what the rest of the Phillips translation said. It had a great counter to that as well, but I only had the molding part, thinking of jello all the time. Uh, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To be carnally minded, fleshly minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind. And that spoke of, you know, back in the day they wore like the, the garment that went down past their legs and in order to run and be swift and the, be a warrior and be able to be moving and agile, they used to have to take the... Uh, you know, the, the skirt, if you will, and they used to have to strap it up and wrap it up and tuck it into itself, basically make a pair of athletic shorts out of it so that they could run and jump and move. And, and he basically, Peter takes that to our mind and says, don't let there just be floppy edges. You know, Paul says, take every thought captive. Come before the word of God and let your mind be renewed. Bring those edges and all the floppiness and let your mind go wherever it is and discipline your mind in the spirit. So renew your mind. Stott says, and I decided already tonight, guys, we're only going to go through verse 24 because 25 goes through uh, chapter 5, verse 4, and it's we're not going to make it that far tonight. So, so you can breathe a little bit. Whew, okay, yeah, Mary, I saw you. I know, you, I know you're tired. I'm just teasing. This, this uh, being renewed in the spirit of your mind is in the tense called present infinitive tense. And the present infinitive indicates that there, yes, is a decisive rejection of the old man with all of its deceitful lusts, and then there's an implicit conversion into the new man, which is a daily, continuous, inward renewal of our outlook of what it means to be a Christian. So that means daily we're in the Word, and daily we're sitting under teaching, and we're learning day by day by the Spirit of God, by the Word of God, Christ our teacher, uh, um, we're learning him, we're knowing him, and he's showing us what it means being a Christian. 
And just in the way the Gentile pagan heathens had a degradation because of their ignorance, so too as we become uh, knowledgeable of Christ through the word of God, there will be a, a growth of a renewal of mind. Instead of going downhill as the Gentiles, uh, we're growing and we're, the Lord is refining us and causing us to be pure before him because our minds are being renewed. And with that is verse 24, our last verse tonight. And that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So the idea is clothing here. Just as uh, we all have different roles in life where we have to wear different clothes. You know, uh, if you're a lawyer, you dress a certain way for court. Uh, you know, if you're a policeman, you dress a certain way for the shield. Uh, if you're a soldier, you dress a certain way for the military. Likewise, when you're, uh, when you are, you know, um, retired or what you might call it in the military, discharged, uh, then you put on what they call civvies, I think they call it, you know, civilian uh, outfits, you know, like where, whatever your role is, uh, you know, I'm kind of a funky guy because, you know, I've lived half my life in the country and half in my city and, you know, tonight I got my DC, uh, you know, sweatshirt on and like tomorrow I might have my Wranglers and my Spurs on and be out roping calves, you know, so it's like, uh, whatever the role is, like, hey, um, let's go do it, you know, and, uh, and Paul basically is saying the same thing here, like back when you were the old man, you would wear the old man, all right, and he said, Zip it off, take it off, throw it away. Eliminate it is the language. Stop it. All right? Uh, and then now we have this imperative, like you must put on the new man now, which is dress yourself up. You know, think of it as a, as a, uh, a costume, you know, or think of it as a uh, um, mechanics wear them, you know, overalls, you know, a onesie. Sure. <laughs> Got the little buttons. You know, those of us that have kids. Uh, overalls, someone knew it. <laughs> Not the guy you'd think would know it. Uh, and uh, we just full body, right? We put on this new man. Dress yourselves in the new man. Romans says the night is far spent. The day is at hand now. Gentiles was our nighttime, guys. We've had enough of that, Peter says. Now the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And he goes on in Romans 13 to say, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that tense? That it's a daily thing that we must do. We must reckon the old man dead and a new garment that's been put on us. His name is Jesus. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts anymore. Galatians put it, if you've been baptized into Christ Jesus, then you've put on Christ. This new man was created according to God, Ephesians 4 tells us. Sovereign creation, we've been recreated by God in true righteousness and holiness. Now we are right with God and we're dedicated to God. Flip to Colossians 3 and we'll close just by reading uh, five verses here. Colossians 3, it's like a parallel uh, to Ephesians 4. Hopping in the middle of a sentence here and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge. You guys catching some of the parallels already? Put on the new man 
who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. That verse alone has so much just parallel to where we just were in Ephesians 4. And then there's this good news now. There's not Greek or Jew or circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And then he's going to get in in Colossians, a very parallel to the rest of our chapter, uh, what the new man life looks like. And we'll look at that. Uh, I'm not sure if that'll be a Sunday morning thing um, uh, or just a continuation for next Wednesday night. But uh, why don't we go ahead and put our Bibles aside and if the worship...